This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the webbox podcast i'm matt chorley i've been at the times for almost seven years so i've got a little bit of a way to go before i catch up with michael binion he's been at the times for 50 years there's a Lovely chat coming up with him on the podcast, uh, looking back on half a century, where he's basically been the Forrest Gump of the times. He's been at every major event, from the desert in Egypt to the Oval Office, the fall of the Iron Curtain to the fall of the Iron Lady. Really, really lovely chat with him coming up. Uh, We'll have the columnist in just a moment as well. But some big breaking news when we're on air today. Confirmation that interest rates rising from 2.25% to 3%. biggest rise in decades. I was joined in the studio for instant reaction by the Labour leader, Keir Starmer. Keir, first of all, your, your, your reaction to that news? Well, I'm just looking at that graph there, Matt, and looking at that figure and that rise and thinking about all the families across the country now receiving that news and how worried they're going to be about their finances. It's been hard enough already. This is going to make things much, much harder. And this isn't just about, you know, what's happening this week or next week. This has been 12 years now of utter failure from this government. We haven't had growth in the economy or sufficient growth in the economy for over a decade. And that's left us more exposed than other countries. There is a Tory premium now on mortgages and families will look at that figure, know how difficult things are now and shudder that, you know, because of the failure of the last 12 years, they now, working families across the country, are going to be paying the price. I mean, clearly, when we saw yesterday, interest rates going up in America as well. Uh, inflation is rising around the world, in a large part because of what's happening in Ukraine. How much... That's the... only part of the I'm story, well, that's though, what I say. How that's much only... of this, is, do you think, is down to the government and how much is just what is happening in the world? Well, look, uh, of course, there's other stuff going on in the world, but that's only part of the story. Um, it's We're more exposed in this country. We're paying a higher price in this country because of the failure over the last 12 years. We've got weak foundations to our economy. We haven't had anything like the growth that we've needed. Therefore, we're more exposed. So I don't, don't it, it is not right for the government to simply suggest this is all external factors. This, I'm afraid, lies at the door of Downing Street. Inflation has been inching up, I mean, basically since the pandemic. Do you th- think that the Bank of England has been too slow to put up interest rates, which is why we're now seeing such sharp rises? Well, I think it's very important that the Bank of England acts independently. 
um, and takes their decisions independently. But the environment in which these decisions are being taken is an environment that's been set for a very, very long time. Yes, we had a kamikaze budget under Liz Truss, which made... Uh, you know, did real economic damage to our country. But this that, that's that's just the edge of what's been going on for a very, very long time. Talk to any businesses across the country and ask them the, the, the simple problem of the last 12 years, and they will say, we haven't grown the economy, we haven't got strong foundations, and that's down to this government. But now, yet again, working people paying the price. Looking at that graph today, people will be immediately going to their mortgage repayments. They know they're paying a Tory premium. Do you think also there's a failure of, and I don't know whether it's finance world or probably politicians as well, that if you're looking at these, these graphs, you know, for a long time, interest rates bobbing along 4 5 6%, that was the norm. Post the crash, they've been at a record low. There's a whole generation of people who've got on the housing ladder at these artificially low interest rates, and they are now combined with in- bills going up, food bills, energy bills. People are going to be really struggling as a result of basically being sold you know, mortgages on the, which weren't sustainable in the long term. I don't think they were artificially low, but you're absolutely right to focus on those individuals. And I've spoken to people um, in Wolverhampton just the other day who, you know, a couple who have saved up for a deposit, their dream is to move in together, they found the place they want to move into, they had their mortgage offer, because the government's lost control of the economy, that mortgage has gone through the roof, they can't do it, their dream is shattered. Um, there are so many. These are the human costs of this Tory failure. Another couple I talked to, they want another child. They've got one. Again, found the place they want. Can't do it now because the government's lost control of the economy. And now they've taken the decision they're going to delay or maybe not even have that second child. So this, you know, 3%, these, these graphs look very sort of mathematical. Yeah. But the human impact is huge. Is there anything that you've done or stopped doing as a result of the the cost of living squeeze? Well, our mortgage has gone up like everybody else's. I'm not going to plead uh, a special case. But um, yes, we've been exposed as other people have been exposed. But I feel very strongly for those people whose dream um, of somewhere to buy has been absolutely shattered by this government's failure on the economy. Uh, Paul's just texted in. It's very easy to sit on the sides and snipe. Please ask Keir Starmer what Labour would do differently. Oh, I mean, we've set out um, what we would do many, many months ago in relation to, for example, energy prices with a windfall tax on oil and gas uh, companies to make sure that we're not putting all of this on borrowing. Um, Those excess profits are huge. Um, Even the oil and gas companies say they they recognise that they should pay their fair share. We would do things very differently. We need to stabilise the economy. We need to grow the economy. And as for being on the sidelines, you know, I've been saying for some time, let's have a general election. Let the public Jews, do they want to continue with this utter chaos and economic damage or go to a Labour government with stability uh, and economic credibility? You're enjoying quite a, a honeymoon in the polls at the moment, 20, 20, 25 points ahead of the Conservatives. But if you look at the uh, on the economy, Tories are still ahead in some polls. It's neck and neck in others. Do you think that you and the Labour Party, Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, need to do more to reassure people that their finances would be safe if you were in number 10? Well, the polling on the economy is changed over the last few years and we have absolutely closed the gap um, and in some places moved ahead on the economy. But I think that's a reflection of the fact that we are putting on the table uh, the answers to the challenges. If you take um, the windfall tax on oil and gas well, it's companies... It's the time today. We the were the ar- thing that you've been talking about is yeah, now being we, considered We by were arguing for, this, for this the best part of a year ago. Um, Rishi Sunak then took a part of that, but he waited a number of months. People paid the price for that. Um, and now they're umming and ahhing about doing it. It's obvious to us 
that if there are excess profits there, profits those oil and gas companies didn't expect to make, and they're saying they'll pay their fair share, well, then they should pay their fair share. It shouldn't be put on to borrowing, which in the end means that taxpayers, those whose mortgages are going up, can pay double uh, for this. So um, the reason I think people are looking again at Labour Party is because we are putting those pragmatic, sensible solutions on the table, and the government is you know, behind the curve on this. Um, just I've been asking the same, uh, the same thing of, uh, of Conservatives. Uh, just some like, nice short answers. Should benefits rise in line with inflation? Yes. Should the triple locks remain for pensions? Yes. And uh, should the uh, um, the uh, the health and social care levy uh, be returned, given that you seem to accept the, the NHS needs more money? Well, we do need more money for the NHS, and we would obviously fund that in, in our own way. But yes, we do need. And have you spoken to Rishi Sunak beyond just across the dispatch box if you had a cup of tea? Yes, we have spoken. Um, we've obviously got to have a relationship that is beyond the dispatch box. Um, and I've been very clear with him that you know, whilst we've, we will be robust in our challenges to each other, and you've seen a bit of that in PMQs, when it comes to other issues, Ukraine, um, security of our country, or, you know, heaven forbid, terrorism, I think the country would expect um, the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition to be in lockstep and working together, and we will be. Labour leader Keir Starmer reacting to the news of interest rates going up. And of course, all of that will feed into what happens in the autumn statement on November the 17th, which we will analyse for you when that comes round. Up next, it's time for this. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, normally at this time on a Thursday, we're joined by Knight at the Marriott. We've got no Indian night today, so instead it's Man at the Marriott. It's Manveen Rana from Stories of Our Times. Morning, Manveen. Hello. I've just told James I think we should pitch a travel column together. Called Man at the Marriott. Man at the Marriott. Anywhere think. where there's a Marriott. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. I think it's a good idea. Uh, and uh, James Matt. Morning, James. Good morning. Now, James, um, I, uh, I've got. I want, I want to start by discussing something that you tweeted that I didn't understand at all. Yeah, go for it. I acknowledge this is an obnoxious way to use Twitter. It begins. Uh, <laughs> don't worry, it's not. It's not that bad. Uh, but is there a bit in? How do you pronounce that, James? To talk, Tocqueville's. Tocqueville. To Tocqueville's D- Democracy in America, where he says the proliferation of points of view in a democratic society means that one day it would not be possible to express any opinion without controversy. Having now read your column, James, you didn't find it, did you? No, I didn't find it. Although it's an amazing book. Um, <laughs> that book, Democracy in America, is abs- it's so good. And so explain your, your column today. It's sort of, it's actually, um, I, I'm disappointed that you didn't uh, plagiarise James Corden plagiarising uh, Ricky Gervais because it's all about the town square, the concept of a town square, Twitter is a town square. And your argument is actually we don't need a town square, the echo chambers and, uh, are, are much better. Exactly. Um, I think this is a really interesting misapprehension that people have about social media. One of the things that we kind of learned to say about it is that, oh, it's terrible, it divides up into echo chambers, people only listen to their own side. There's a lot of interest, well, yeah, the mo- basically the evidence shows that's not true, that people on social media are actually exposed to more different points of view, and that's what makes them so angry. It's constantly having to bump up against people with lunatic opinions, which you dislike. And the argument of my column was basically society and democracies function much better when people are relatively ignorant of other people's mad views and they actually are in echo chambers which if you think about it was the situation we were in before social media you know people chose their newspapers on the basis of their politics and their class probably and they absorbed those views and they they were perfectly happy and they didn't you know if you read the guardian you didn't have to be infuriated by what was in the daily mail all the time if you read the daily (laughs) mail you didn't have to be infuriated by the guardian i think it was much better for society 
when we didn't know each other's views to the degree that we do now. I mean, it did, it did make me think when I was reading it. Part of me was well, that's why politi- having covered politics since pre, just pre-Twitter and then post, that actually part of the reason why politics felt quieter, less frenetic, was because people didn't think about it all the time. They weren't thinking about it all the time because they were reading the paper and then they'd go and do something else. They weren't constantly scrolling through every last... You know, I, I find it weird that normal people... Uh, follow the ins and outs of you know where Kwasi Kwarteng's plane is, or uh, I think that's such a good point. Um, I, that sort of you know, and so as a result, constant engagement is bad. Yeah, I, I think it's so. It's something else I wanted to write about actually. So I'm going to have to beat you to it. But um, yeah, the politicization of everything, like politics, is everywhere. It's you know Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And you're scrolling through and you're reading what your friends had for lunch, but every other tweet is about Matt Hancock or immigration and we're just much more saturated with politics as a society, I guess, because that's something social media companies know that they can push it us to boost our engagement. Well, I think it's, as yeah. one of us is going to write a column uh, on Saturday before you get to write one next week, uh, James, I can't rule out the possibility that I might nick, well, I might nick my well, own idea. I mean, you do. It is your idea. <laughs> Manfred, what do you think about this? Is it, 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 should, it, should we, is, so, is it good to have a town square where everyone gets to hear from everyone else? Or is it better if we live in our own little cupboards? <laughs> Well, um, I mean, I agree. I sort of think, you know, we all used to argue that, you know, the town square was a great idea. You wanted a place where you could exchange ideas and you could come across views that you didn't necessarily hold, but, you know, you'd be challenged by them and you would engage with them. And this was all great. And now I sort of, I always think it's almost like a generational divide. I find people who sort of defend that and defend free speech on social media and, and, and the sanctity of it tend to be people who only ever encountered that town square in terms of sort of like very polite debating societies or sort of you know the the letters column in newspapers and don't necessarily do social media themselves because social media I think is sort of you know it's a bin fire of that um what you end up with because algorithms effectively feed off fury is that you don't just find an exchange of ideas you find you only find like the angriest and it just makes everybody who engages with it sort of slightly angrier and what you don't have, which you would have in a normal town square or in a debating society, are just the rules of, you know, the social norms in the way that you, you speak to other people or, or even like the laws about sort of incitement, because so much of it is anonymous on Twitter, for example, or on social media. None of those really apply in the same way. So, you know, people sort of say, well, you know, we, uh, uh, debate and, and free speech are, are wonderful things and we've always sort of fought for them. But they've always done that within the rules of you can't say things which will incite violence. You know, they, they've had a very polite version of that. What you have on Twitter is effectively, it's kind of like, um, you know, what Hobbes wrote about before you have like the social contract where, you know, life is just sort of, uh, you know, nasty, brutish and short, you know, for, for, for people who are on social media, you know, you get sort of torn down. Things are, are pretty bleak um, and, and it doesn't have sort of all the niceties that you would have in normal life and we haven't found a way of applying many of those rules so it's sort of it's I think social media if you go back to the history sort of started off it's a bit like Lord of the, Fri- Lord of the Flies <laughs> it started off with everybody being very polite and exchanging yeah. jokes and everyone was very pleased to be there and then the algorithm set to work and it wasn't just about the exchange of ideas it was about the fact that it fuels fury and it feeds off it and you only do well on social media and your posts only do well if you're inciting other people to be furious and engage with them with fury and as a result it sort of ended up just being this sort of slightly lawless Lord of the Flies style, you know, you're watching sort of society degenerate to the point where it's not sort of, it's not debate that you're engaging with. It's just making everyone angry. And uh, uh, James, the other thing that sort of occurs to me is it it forces 
us or people who use social media. There's a, sort of, it forces people to take position. Like in the, in the good old days, you could just say, I don't know. I'm not really across, you know, you could, you could go about your life without taking a position on absolutely everything. And then you get in a sort of situation where, I don't know, if you tweet, isn't it terrible the way that children are being treated in Manson? Well, what are you going to do about it? Have you got any better ideas? It's not, it's not actually, strictly speaking, it's not actually my job. It's allowed, you know, you're allowed to say, you know, this seems like a bad thing. But this sort of everyone being forced to take a position and come up with an idea and, and then everyone sort of falls out about it. That actually just saying, just being in the middle of, well, I'm not sure and this seems, this seems complicated. You're not allowed to do that in the in the sort of yeah I, yeah. I mean, I, com- I completely agree, and it's just yeah the proliferation of having to have opinions, which you know, as an opinion columnist, I know is like a very stressful, <laughs> difficult thing to have to do every week, and now everybody has to do it, and everybody has to have opinions. I think it's terrible. I think you know everyone should have fewer opinions. I think I should have fewer opinions. Um, yeah, I, co- I completely agree, and I, I mean, I think it's you know. The kind of problem there is, you know, we're all trying to build our brands on social media and we're all trying to tell everyone who we are in the world. And unfortunately, a very, you know, evidently very good way of doing that is by defining ourselves politically, where we stand on this issue and that issue. Yeah, no opinions. Death to it. I mean, I can't really write that as an opinion column because I'd probably get myself I'm just, wondering, fired, I'm just wondering whether I could... No can I fashion something out of that for Saturday? Well, I don't really do it, Paul. I just do sort of... <laughs> Watch it. Sort of, uh, quite, yeah. Well, I don't think it's good. We're workshopping. We're workshopping. Um, let's talk <laughs> about... Um, uh, I've been thinking about Enoch Powell. There's, a, there's, a, there's an opener for you. So, um, uh, uh, sort of off the back of, obviously, the big, the big conversation about immigration and, pe- you know, using words like invasion and so on and the extent to which, uh, you know, the, the language we use is really important in this. But I was, I, for, for uh, reasons we don't need to go into, I was recently reading Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech. And in it, he says, in 15 or 20 years, on present trends, there'll be, in this country, three and a half million Commonwealth immigrants and their descendants. He then goes on to say there's no comparable figure for the, for the year 2000, but it must be in the region of five to seven million, approximately one-tenth of the whole population. He was obviously particularly focused on race and Commonwealth immigrants. But then today on the front of the Times, an increase in migrants from Romania has pushed the number of people in England Wells born outside the UK to 10 million. And it strikes me, it's sort of interesting, Enoch Powell was right about the maths. He was just wrong about the, the, the public reaction, that there hasn't been, in his words, you know, the rivers of blood, they didn't use the phrase, the foaming uh, type river Tiber. But um, in terms of the, the public reaction, he was right about the numbers that Britain's, you know, for lots of different reasons, whether it was Windrush or membership of the EU and not having those controls when it was opened up to Eastern countries. But the public, rea- although the public across, it hasn't tipped, thankfully, it hasn't tipped over into the, the anger on the streets that, that Enoch Powell predicted. Yeah, I think that's partly because, you know, a lot of a lot of that sort of fear of, of the anger that would come comes from a position of of not knowing. You know, it comes from the, the fear of the unknown. Um, and then when you when you actually meet people, a lot of those things dissipate very quickly. You know, I, I mean, I, I just remember sort of doing uh, a series of sort of constituency profiles, you know, going around to a lot of the, the constituencies in the red wall at the last election. And I found that sort of, you know, in the ones where you would imagine there would be far more problems and you do have you know like a, a slightly more far-right candidate because you know the, the constituency is a bit more ghettoized and they were very distinctly had two very separate communities um people were still actually quite nice about 
the other effectively, you know, the yeah. other people in the constituency. Whereas, you know, I remember going to places like, I think it was Bishop Auckland, where people would keep saying to me, you know, their biggest fear, their biggest sort of thing that was going to swing their vote was immigration. And I was like, well, that's really interesting. So is it because, you, you know, do you have a lot of immigrants here? And I'm like, no, no, none, none, none at all. And I think it's often that sort of, it's not that, it, you know, it's slightly manufactured and it's sort of played on by politicians, but it's always the fear of the unknown. And when people actually do end up with neighbours, you know, eventually you'll, you know, you'll, you'll share sugar or something. You know, you, you, yeah, <laughs> you'll yeah, find yeah. that they're not as, as demonic well, as you What is that whole thing? Well, I don't mean them. It's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so like, I think you know, you have a fear that when that happens, it's it's going to lead to rivers of blood, and they'll, and and you know, it'll it'll uh, society will be fighting itself. But then, when you actually meet people who you you didn't know before, but who are from a, a different culture, it turns out you can kind of rub along. And the other thing, Manby, that, that that struck me thinking about that this week is that the it's sort of precisely the people who arrived in the sixties and seventies that Enoch Powell was so angry about. It's their descendants who are now in government, uh, you know, in, in uh, well, in Rishi Sunak, in Suella Braverman, uh, Priti Patel as well. And yet they are, particularly in the case of Suella Braverman and Priti Patel, the, some of the most right-wing about immigration. I know. Well, it's interesting because if you do go back to the original speech that he gave, he cited, and, you know, we don't know if this is true, but he sort of said that some of his constituents who were people of colour were worried about the the number of people coming in because they thought it would destabilize things so i think there is you know there is an element yeah. of that there are people who who worry that sort of any more might risk their position almost so yeah you know, it's that's interesting very hard that. to, yeah yeah it's just interesting that he mentioned it in his speech as, as one of the thing you know one of the reasons he was so worried about it so uh, i wonder if this this is almost sort of like a these are people who've inherited some of those ideas and, and have taken them on. And actually, then it's become a sort of a conversation about numbers, James, rather than about race. We've sort of successfully taken take take racism out of xenophobia or something. Um, uh, the, the 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 concern now is about the numbers of people coming here in a way that because previously the yeah, but mainly because the big numbers of people coming here were from white European countries rather than the Caribbean. Yeah, I thought I thought that um, analogy you made was so was so interesting and because you know there's so much kind of hue and cry and at the moment about how wrong we're getting immigration and all the kind of misery in the camps at Manston stuff it is nice the way you put that that it kind of reminds us that there is actually there is actually a kind of good news a longer term good news story which is this really kind of mainstream current of thinking that once existed that Britain couldn't be a multicultural society it couldn't work it was going to be a disaster there's going to be social breakdown it has literally been proved to be completely false and actually we're doing it we're a multicultural society to the extent that you know as you as you as you point out um from that bit of the speech you quoted you know we have all we have you know so many more millions of people from other countries living here and you know everyone's getting along fine and it turns out that you know it wasn't the huge problem everyone you know yeah. many people once said it was going to be well let's let's let, let's end on like, oh, i was gonna say big, no go on but this better not be a down downer because yeah, i was about promise, to say that's I a promise. nice positive note to end on Mary, so don't ruin <laughs> it's it it's not a downer i promise <laughs> i was just gonna say just because everything in modern politics has to be explained via a pie uh, i think sort of a lot of those fears initially were just that they sort of saw people coming in would take a piece of their pie and yeah. then actually when people did come in they realized the pie grew yeah in the way that we're told and in fact can. and in fact we're going to discover that they're going to increase the numbers to try and grow the pie uh, lovely to speak to you both Manveen Rana and James Marrett there. Of course, you can listen to Manveen on the Stories of Our Times podcast. Download that wherever you're listening to this. And you can read James in the Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, 
Lovely chat with Michael Binion. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Now, I've been at the Times for coming up to seven years. So I've got a little way to go before I catch up with Michael Binion. He's celebrating 50 years at the Times. He's now a leader writer, but he's worked as a foreign and diplomatic correspondent across Europe, Russia and the Middle East and America too. He's, to some extent, and I mean this in the nice possible way, the Times is Forrest Gump. He's, he keeps cropping up. It's historic moments. He was at the fall of the Berlin Wall. He was at the fall of Margaret Thatcher and has interviewed many numerous world leaders along the way. So I sat down with him for a whistle-stop tour of his incredible career. Can you tell the last half a century of world history through one person? Well, at the Times you can. This is the one person. 50 years ago this week, Michael Binion started reporting for the Times, and he's still here. <laughs> yes, I am, amazingly, yes. Michael, we'll do a sort of romp through your career in a moment, but first of all, take us back 50 years ago. Where was the Times then? What was the Times office like? What was reporting like uh, back in 1972? It was a very gentlemanly outfit. Uh, in fact, so much so that every night you felt that you were jumping into a feather bed at the Times. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't really very competitive or cutthroat or... No, no, it took a much loftier view of the world. But sometimes there was no kind of urgency. I mean, there was a very pleasant, gentlemanly night editor who used to wear half-moon glasses and sit very calm late at night with his hands together and he would say something there. Do you think our Washington correspondent is going to file the assassination of the president? <laughs> <laughs> something of that sort. Uh, and I said, oh, yes, undoubtedly he will. Yeah. So let's start then with your career with the Times. Uh, you graduated as a student of Arabic, and then you, you ended up being based in Cairo. Yes, that was the Middle East 73 war. By then there was a ceasefire. I crossed into the desert over the pontoon bridge, over the canal. Luckily, the Israelis weren't bombing anymore at that time. I think I could safely say that the chances for not just a ceasefire, which we presently have, and which, of course, we have had in the Mideast for some time, but the outlook for a permanent peace is the best that it has been in 20 years. But all kinds of chaos was going on in the desert. And how do you report? I mean, these days, you take a phone and you could 
email your copy back. Oh, how yeah, how do you get your reporting out of Cairo in Well, the, the standby for every journalist in those days was the telex, and yeah. everybody became an expert in you know, punching this tape with little holes in it, and made your tape, and then you fed it into the machine, and you go chug, 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 and, and it would come through. A new weapon is installed in the Pentagon, but it's a weapon of peace. This is the teletype that will operate at the US end of an open line to Moscow. Now a president could be in touch with the Russian premier in a matter of seconds. But of course there was such incredible pressure on the few telex lines available that we basically had to beg Reuters. And they said, we'll send it as soon as we can, which usually meant a wait of about five hours. So it wasn't instant copy. Is that where you got a taste of being a foreign reporter? Yeah, it was very exciting. And it was a, you know, it was a war. It was then a big diplomatic thing when Kissinger came along after yeah. a break in relations. Suddenly Kissinger and Egypt were the best of friends and Sadat uh, announced that there would be a ceasefire. And I stayed on for about two or three weeks, sort of mopping up the war, as it were. So we moved from the 1970s then. What happened in the 1980s? They said, would you like to reopen the Moscow job? Because we'd had a Moscow correspondent, but he was rather friendly with the dissidents, and the Russians didn't like that. And five years earlier, they just kicked him out. That was it. He'd expelled. So the office was shut. The bureau was shut. We lost the flat. We lost everything. And I had to go out there, starting off in a very dreary hotel for about four months, and reopen the office. But that was, that was fun. That was interesting. And it was um, the dozy days of Brezhnev and proper communism. It was a wonderful chance to just report daily life in Russia. Because the one thing people didn't know is, what do Russians do? How do they live? They couldn't travel. Nobody had ever met Russians before. We just knew about them from our cartoon characters, as it were, the baddies. But just talking about uh, you know, how they cope with winter, going to the pet market, what it's like traveling on a Russian train, those sort of things. That was a lot of fun. And I did a weekly diary of Moscow life for about four years. And does being the Times man in Moscow opened doors. Yeah, they thought that the Times was the same as Pravda. They thought it was the <laughs> official government newspaper and therefore it was the one that mattered. And I never told them, actually, it's not quite a government <laughs> newspaper. Uh, but it opened quite a few doors. So the Times was always considered the paper of record. And if they wanted something, they would make sure I was invited. Is there a challenge for you as the, I mean, clearly you were worried about your safety, how much you could report without upsetting essentially your hosts and your sources of information? Yes, I mean, I think you, you must be brave. You can't say, I won't do anything that upsets the host, because then the Russians think we've got another holy fool here. You know? yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously they were expecting that you would cover things like the trials of the dissidents, the invasion of Afghanistan, and they would expect you to be pretty critical. But the key thing was to keep a balance. So what you sent to London was a bit of the really tough stuff they didn't like, but equally... If you wrote about how Russians enjoy themselves on holidays or something like that, which people found interesting, that's a fair journalistic story, but the Russians were quite happy that yeah. you were reporting that. And occasionally, I mean, the KGB would, would check on you. You, could, you knew the fl flat was bugged, and they would sometimes follow the car, but never too obviously. So I never had any real trouble. I never got denounced in the papers, which is the first sign that they're not happy, or get your car tyres slashed. That's another sign that they're not very happy. Then, still in the 1980s, you went from Moscow to Germany. Yes, yes. Well, that was quite a lively time. Uh, it was Bonn, of course, because it was West Germany. Yeah. Uh, and Bonn is a very small city. I remember an American correspondent, he said, Bonn is half the size of a Chicago graveyard and twice as dead. <laughs> I went across 
to East Germany once or twice. I mean, the whole business of crossing Checkpoint Charlie over into East Berlin, then into East Germany, it was quite a rigmarole. And so later, years later, when I reported the fall of the Berlin Wall, I knew what it was like crossing over. Listening to the wind of change. Just describe that, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Where were you? Were you, was that when you were still reporting? Yeah, I was still reporting, but I was in Brussels, and we had a correspondent, Anne McElvoy, in East Berlin, but it was impossible to cross from East to West Berlin. And when the war came down, everybody tried to cross. So they needed somebody in West Berlin. So I was pretty close. They said, how quick can you get to West Berlin? It's only about an hour and a half's flight. I said, I could be there by 7.30 tomorrow morning. And I got to the airport, and I just said, the wall, straight away, to the taxi driver drove me to the wall, and there I saw people just dancing on top of the wall. I thought, this is just unbelievable, having known what it was like. And they said, come, 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 and, you know, come up. It was quite high. The wall is quite much higher than you sort of think. And so, with difficulty, I scrambled up. They were pulling me up to get up on top of the wall. I lost my house keys in the process. Never, never <laughs> found me, I remember that. And I stood on top of the wall and looking across into uh, the East Berlin with the Stasi guards with their guns, just not knowing what to do, just standing around, not no orders, and all the West Berliners dancing on top of the wall, you know, screaming and shouting. It was very exciting. Let's rewind a bit. Let's go back to when you were in Port of Bonn and, uh, to begin with. You were involved in what was potentially the biggest story the oh, Times had gosh, ever broken. Yes. Oh, but um, with, with a small caveat <laughs> yeah. that it turned out not to be true. It wasn't true. I remember the story very well. The Hitler Diaries. I was the Bond correspondent, and uh, some fraudster had sold these diaries that he claimed were the originals to Stern magazine, which was the big news magazine in Germany. And they, in turn, had tried to sell it on to Rupert Murdoch, and I was summoned to meet them in Hamburg and together meet the Stern people Rupert Murdoch did the negotiating himself alone to start with. It went on all day, and we tried to get the lawyers to get a guarantee that these things were true, and we had no guarantee at all. Everyone's pretty sceptical about it, but we thought, well, you know, it's a sensational story if these diaries really are there, and what do they say, etc. By the end of the day, Stern said, yeah, so we are agreed on 2.75 million, and Rupert Murdoch said, no, we're not agreed on that. That was not the price. Uh, sorry, I'm going home. And he left, got up, walked out, and that was it. And they realised that they'd missed a trick. The whole thing was off. And we sort of breathed a sigh of relief. But then, three weeks later, they did another deal separately with Murdoch for, I think, about 275,000. Uh, 275, Absolutely nothing. Yeah. And it was on again. And uh, we were told that the diaries were going to be published that Saturday. So I happened to be in Britain, and I was summoned to the Times. Quick, quick, come up. Write the splash, you know. So I remember writing that the, something like the secret diaries of Adolf Hitler have been found in an East German hayloft. And Charlie Wilson, who was then deputy editor, was there, and so was Peter Hennessy, who was then on the staff, now Lord Hennessy. And he said, you know, I would be careful because I mistakenly identified one of the Cambridge spies, the wrong one. I would put alleged. So I put the alleged secret diaries of Adolf Hitler. Charlie Wilson came along and said, we've paid for these, they're not alleged, <laughs> took out the alleged. And so then a week later, it all collapsed. What was it? Because it's a fascinating... It's, it's, I mean, it's such an extraordinary thing, and I can see how the excitement about having yeah. such an amazing scoop might gain a sense of momentum. These are Hitler's diaries from the bunker. Yeah. What was it that meant that they collapsed a week after the story was published rather well, than the week before? I mean, the West German government was absolutely, totally embarrassed. I mean, it's the last thing they wanted to know. And so uh, they challenged them, show us the proof. 
So they said, well, all right, give us the actual document. We will test the paper and the ink, you know, do all that sort of thing, which they hadn't done. Yeah. And within, within four days, they came back, said, it's a crude forgery from the 1980s. And that was it. All hell broke loose. And I mean, damn, they, they were, I mean, basically the magazine was finished. I mean, it recovered, but it was, it was ruined. Yeah. Let's move on to Washington then. One of the biggest challenges there, obviously, is the time difference. Yeah, the time difference. And the other, funnily enough, the other challenge is that the Americans are not really very interested in talking to foreign correspondents. That's interesting. All that matters for the presidency is the New York Times, the Washington Post, domestic yeah. agencies, the St. Louis Dispatch, you know, all the other ones, Boston Globe, the Times of London. Oh, yeah, well, we, we might fit them in, you know. And they sometimes said, uh, I tell you, why don't we knock off all the Europeans together? And you knew that there was a message for Europe if you suddenly got an invitation to meet Senator so-and-so, and then you'd find a, your colleague from Le Monde or La Stampa or, you know, Frankfurt Allgemeine were there as well. I got a chance, at very short notice, to interview Reagan, and that was because he wanted to send a message to Europe about being tough on Libya. They were having, I mean, it was it just bombed Libya. There was some big campaign going on. Gaddafi and other Libyan officials have publicly admitted that the Libyan government has abetted and supported the notorious Abu Naidel terrorist group, which was directly responsible for the Roman Vienna attacks. Gaddafi called them heroic actions. I call them criminal outrages by an outlaw regime. By providing material support to terrorists, so we were summoned to the White House. We were only allowed to ask about this one issue. Been well briefed, so he answered the questions pretty well. And then he came over as very nice and really charming. You know, how long have you been in Washington? Do you have a nice time? And suddenly I understood why it was that this guy had such a grip on the country. He just played the role with great charm. And then, of course, there were all the Reagan-Gorbachev summits, and that was interesting. Both the United States and Soviet Union are doing research on the possibilities of applying new technologies to the cause of defense. If these technologies become a reality, it is my dream that will to one day free us all from the threat of nuclear destruction. There is much work to be done. Mr. Gorbachev will visit the United States later this year, and I look forward to showing him our country. The worst one of all was the Reykjavik summit in Iceland, because again, we were two hours behind London, so the deadline for the first edition was 7.30. The summit finished. We didn't know whether it was a failure or a success. It all depended on whether they'd agreed on an arms control deal. We didn't know. And along comes Schultz, the American Secretary of State. We had a, a phone line back to our office in Washington, just one phone line, but straight back. Couldn't get contact London or anywhere. And it was absolutely on deadline. I told them, keep the paper, you know, hold the front page, wait for it. Schultz came in. He said, a world without nuclear weapons, a summit that ends on a smile and a handshake, so I phoned the Washington, quick, uh, Schultz says, summit ends, smile and handshake, world without nuclear weapons. Then after about five minutes rambling on, he said, unfortunately, it was not to be. <laughs> <laughs> he said, unfortunately, we didn't agree on anything, and I'm afraid the summit collapsed. I called Washington, said, stop, stop, tell us. I said, sorry, <laughs> we sent it already. And that was it. The first edition had, summit ends, smile and handshake, a world without nuclear weapons, and you know, five minutes. I said, just five minutes couldn't have yeah, yeah. gone. Too late. Second edition was very different. Yeah, we've, we've all been there with the how the second edition can, can look very different to the first. We'll be there. Say we'll be there. 
and then you became in the in the end of the eighties, early nineties. You were then in Brussels. Yeah, you've really ticked off all the big. Jobs. Yeah, well, Brussels. I have to say, it was probably one of the liveliest times to be in Brussels. I happened to go to the summit in Paris, where Thatcher made her final appearance the day before she lost power, and she was in the British Embassy. She heard that she had not won the vote. She hadn't got enough to be. She hadn't got enough yeah, yeah. To, to win decisively. I'm actually very pleased that I got more than half the parliamentary party and disappointed that it's not quite enough to win on the first ballot. So I confirm it is my intention to let my name go forward for the second ballot. Isn't the, isn't the vote against you, Mrs Thatcher, large enough for you to have to acknowledge that you Look, no longer have, enjoy the confidence no, of the party? I have got more than half the votes of the parliamentary party. It was not quite 15% above those of uh, Mr. Heseltine, I think it's about 14.6%. So it means we have to go for a second ballot. So I confirm that I shall let my name go forward. Mr. 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 I got a ticket, the only one the British press got, to the banquet at Versailles. So I was there already in the little auditorium where the ballet was going on when she came in. And you could see all the others below. They'd heard the news and they knew one of their own was wounded. And suddenly, having lambasted her throughout all the EU summits, they were very gallant, they got up, you know, the Spaniard kissed her hand, Helmut Kohl showed her to her seat. She was a model of self-control, smiling, how charming, how lovely. And the ballet started, and the ballet was dreadful. I mean, they were like a herd of elephants. They were young, they were kids. But Thatcher was just looking straight ahead, and I could see she wasn't seeing anything. She was thinking, what do I do tomorrow? She flew back first thing next morning, summoned all her cabinet, and that was when it all collapsed. They didn't back her. And then you came back to London to become diplomatic editor. Yeah. What does that role involve? Well, quite a lot of travelling with the Foreign Secretary. So yeah. I travelled a lot with Douglas Hurd, and then Malcolm Rifkind, and then uh, Robin Cook. Lots of quick trips, you know, a couple of days to the Middle East, and you, do, you knock off about four countries in two days. A lot of summitry, all the EU summits... G7 summits as well, lots of those. They were good fun. Being up close with foreign secretaries over that period of time, with any particular you got on with, who you found to be very open or useful for the job of... Uh, They were all very friendly. Yes, Douglas Heard was very friendly. He was pretty disciplined. I mean, if you were late, he just left you behind. That was it. Nobody waited. He left his own diplomats behind if they weren't there on time for the plane. We went to Albania, I remember, soon after the collapse of communism, and to my amazement, the airport was cobbled. So landing was pretty horrific. So the plane was... Well, the runway was cobbled. The runway was cobbled. Wow. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> uh, a German plane came in just after us and burst all its tyres. <laughs> wow. <laughs> didn't help. Well, then we move into the early noughties and you became a leader, yeah. I Suddenly not writing on your own name, but writing, putting forward the paper's yeah, position. That's right. Explain to people who don't know how that works. Talk us through the process yes. of one of those editorials appearing. Well, the editorial, nominally, it's the view of the paper, but that means it's the view of the editor. So it's the only bit of the paper where the editor has the right to change what you've written if he doesn't agree or doesn't like it. And occasionally you don't agree with what the editor thinks. And then it really is more difficult because, I mean, you could just say, well, I can't write that, I don't agree at all. And then, frankly, you're not much good on the team. (laughs) (laughs) What for you is the purpose of the leader? Is it just to sort of set out a point? Is it to guide the reader into trying to make sense of the world? Or is it to sort of... Maybe there have been moments when it sort of changed the world, changed opinion. Well, it's to guide our readers especially. And to some extent, we perhaps pompously, we think it might influence government policy, particularly on some things. If the Times is really thundering about the 45 pence Mm. income tax, which we did, we said it's absolutely wrong, 
and this is from a paper that has supported the government on quite a number of things, but the fact the Times was strongly against it meant that the government, among other things, listened to public opinion. We are part of the public opinion forming process. Coming into the sort of the, the 2010s and more, more recent times. There was the whole thing about, you know, the end of history. Mm. You know, this sort of benign time they were all supposedly living through. And actually what we've seen in the last few years, most notably in Ukraine, but in other parts of the world as well, that maybe we got all that wrong. That actually the, yes. the, the world is as, as full of turmoil as probably at any point in yes. your career. It's sad, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's back to a, a difficult time and we just have to hold our nerve. When I was looking back through all of the people you've interviewed over the years, all the places you've been at, I hope it takes in the nicest possible way. It sort of reminded me of Forrest Gump. You've been at all <laughs> of the, you know, to have been, you know, in the Oval Office with Ronald Reagan, at the fall of Thatcher, at the fall of the Berlin Wall. Did it feel like that at the time? Do you feel like you've, you've had a front row seat yes. in some of these great moments in history? Well, certainly two of them, fall of Thatcher and... Fall- this episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I felt at the time, wow, this is history happening all around me. I really thought this is history. Some things you just think this is a bit of a laugh, you know, although, you know, doing the daily story. But yes, meeting these various statesmen and people, it is a, an honor. It's a, it's, I mean, they're not always very pleasant or lovely, but mostly they're quite friendly. King Hussein was absolutely charming. And King Abdullah, his son, I've interviewed both of them. President Assad was really charming. That was when he was a good boy. And that was when he was just before he came to see Tony Blair in London. And it's all gone horribly wrong there also. Is there anyone you'd like to have interviewed in the last 50 years? Oh, gosh. Um, yes, I suppose. I mean, I have, I won't say interviewed, but I've met Putin three times. I've asked him a question, but along with several others, and that was interesting. I mean, others get their chance. Yeah. It just happens where you are. I mean, yeah. you can't do all of them yourself. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice, but you can't. What a great man. That was Michael Binion, reflecting on 50 years of working for The Times. I've only got 43 years to go. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from? <laughs> 